Welcome to season two of the Pines and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. This show understands that there is quite a bit of diversity amongst the body of Christ. So we operate according to the motto that certain things are fixed, like the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. What's cracking, beer lovers? What how up? We, how we doing? How we doing? Uh, man. It's been a good, successful day. It has been a good day. Um, but we are doing two beers from the same brewery today. Um, both from Modern Times Beer. Um, and they're from San Diego. Um, and they're both IPAs. Mine is called the Orderville. And what is yours? Mine's a ghost. Okay. Um, and no, there's an actual name on it at the top. Oh, laser rain, laser rain. Um, yeah, mine's a hazy mosaic. Um, but, um, it's got a bunch of different, um, what they call dank varieties of hop. Oh, nice. (laughs) Um, order dank. (laughs) dank. If you didn't know, that is a term for cannabis. But hops is a cousin to cannabis. Right. Ergo. Right. Orderville is an aggressive, fragrant, fragrant IPA that blends the fruit-forward characteristic of mosaic hops with the resinous stickiness from a melange. What is that word? Third line down uh, on the left. Melange? I guess. I don't know. It has an accent, so it's not an American word. I mean, it's not an uh, English (laughs) word. Yeah, Um, let's see what that means. Um, A mixture or melody, and it is melange. Um, Mixture or melody of dank hops. The resulting beer is immensely rad (laughs) with an unmistakable uh, banging aroma and a fully saturated hop flavor and finish. The cracker dry body... Keeps the focus squarely on the massive, incredibly delicious hop character, inviting your taste buds to join a drum circle of flavor in magical forest of hops. Um, and it's 7.2 ABV, 75 IBUs, and they actually give the gravity, which is 1.010. Interesting. Yeah. So I have one called the Laser Rain, which it's a tropical cucumber goes, which... I'm not sure how it's going to be. We're, we're going to find out. Um, I do traditionally like goes or goze, however you want to say it, if you're a weirdo. Um, I hate when people correct me. Look, it's goze. I'm like, no, it's goes. Like, you just say goes. It's fine. Um, and this is actually a collab. Oh, cool. It's a collaboration with Culmination Brewing Company. Originally conceived in collaboration with the excellent folks from Culmination Brewing, this incredibly bomb goes was kettle soured and heaped to the rafters with guava, cucumber, and lime. It's refreshment on an unparalleled level and a resounding testament to the power of friendship. It's 5.6%. Wow. and if you've never had on a hot Texas summer day cucumber infused water, it's delicious. 
It is delicious, and it is refreshing. It is very refreshing. So I'm expecting this to be like a fantastic beer for the summer. <clears throat> I'm, I'm. That's why I gave it to you, because I was like, I think he's really going to enjoy this. It does seem like a type of beer that I would like. Yeah. So let's crack these. Let's do it. Cheers. Cheers. Mine smells like a traditional hazy, just like right on the nose. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, fruity, floral. Yeah, that's delicious. Mine's outstanding. I, I, I feel like it is. I couldn't have... I could not have pictured it any better for what it is. Yeah, I... I've, I figured it was going to be fantastic, and I was like, Cullen's really going to enjoy this, and that's why I just passed it right on to you. If I had one critique. Mm, okay. And this is just traditionally true with Go's style beers. They always end up a touch sweet for me. Mm. Just a touch too sweet. Everything else... Perfectly spot on. I I mean, this is a really good beer. I will be drinking it again. It may... Can you get them in six packs? Uh, not at the HEB that we have. If I can find it in six pack, that might be one I keep around like on the reg through summer. Well, wow. Because it really is that kind of crisp, refreshing right. beer. Uh, I'm going 7-9. It is really wow. good. Yeah, so I'm... I'm really enjoying mine. It's fruity. It's floral. Um, it's it's not like fruit adjunct fruity, just to be clear. Uh, it is fruity from the combination of hops or the melange of, melange. <laughs> of hops that they use, which they list them all back here, actually. Uh, Mosaic, Simcoe, uh, Yukonot, uh, Sultana, Eureka, and Nugget. Um, and that blend of hops lends itself to this fruity kind of floral, slightly citrus kind of thing. Um, it's it's really fantastic. Um, I'm probably sitting like seven seven. Oh, okay. Like seven six seven seven. It's it's up there for me in like some of. The, it's up there in the some of my favorite IPAs. Does yours tell you what malt it uses? Nope. I don't have malts here. All I oh nope two row rolled oats and white wheats. Okay, yeah, so mine gives me all the adjuncts and the malts. Yours gives you the hops and the malts. Mm -hmm. Mine uses two-row as well, which American two-row malt is a very common malt. Yeah. It's a base malt for most beers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then I get a wheat malt yep. and a flaked wheat. Interesting. I got rolled oats instead of flaked wheat. Yeah, Um. And it's really light in color, which, I mean, you would, you expect, would expect from yeah. those malts. All right. Cool. Good job. Um, modern, times. modern times. Good job. I really This is good it. beer. Yeah, I really enjoy it a lot. All right. Let's talk some more about the Trinity. Let's do it. Now, Clayton. Yes. Did you notice that Ben and Randy... 
immediately out of the gate in this next section, one of the things they have to point your attention to is the way in which the Enlightenment has affected the trajectory of Trinitarian thought and conversations. You absolutely had to do that. <laughs> like, there, you, there's no way you have this conversation without talking about the Enlightenment period. Well, and it's because it it has massive ramifications yeah. for the way in which that shapes the trajectory of what happens mm -hmm. with Trinitarian thought and conversations right. because it gives rise to something called deism, Yep. of which, if you didn't know what deism is, I'll explain it to you in just a minute, but deism is 100% prevalent today in American churches. Uh, um, overwhelming. I, I would say that a majority of people who identify as Christians are deists, yeah. specifically given over to moralism, moralistic, Therapeutic deism. Yep. What does all of that mean? The most common analogy, metaphor, example of deism is that God is the eternal clockmaker. Right. And God made a beautiful granddaddy clock. A perfect. And because God is a perfect master craftsman, God made it wound it, and set it in motion yep. and never had to touch it again. And so because of that, God is creator God, mm -hmm. but God is not imminent God. Right. God is not active God. God is uber transcendent right. and never to interact in the world. Right. This is so prominent in our current culture because... Clayton, do you have a dollar bill in your pocket? No. You you don't ever carry cash, do no. you? No. Yeah, I normally carry cash. I'm just in God out. we trust. In God we trust. Yeah. Um, it's, it's on, on coins every. Too. It's on every piece of currency we have in America. In God we trust. Um, I one thousand percent can assure you they were not talking about the Christian God. They were talking about a deistic God. Yeah as evidenced by Thomas Jefferson's Bible. Right. If you do not know, you can go buy a copy of Thomas Jefferson's Bible. And when you do, you will realize... It is a very different story. And Do you remember what the main difference about it is? It, they, he took out all the miracles. All the miracles Everything from the Old Testament, everything from Jesus. Including the resurrection of Jesus. Which, for Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, really big deal. It's literally the reason we exist. Yeah. It's for the resurrection. And yet, Thomas Jefferson's like, no, not don't important. need it. Yeah, uh, not important, didn't happen, taking it out. Taking it out. Um, yeah, the, the, the way that, and, and to continue with this, the reason deism is important in this conversation for that and the, the imminent transcendent piece, but also the way they say it, I loved deism served as a halfway house to atheism. One who could hold off, hold to the idea of a self-sufficient and self-operational world and still hold on to the idea of a God who rewards genuine morality after the world runs its course. And this is where you get the moralistic therapeutic, therapeutic element deism. Yep. of deism coming in. Because what people really wanted and what, and what the Enlightenment really wanted to give people 
was a way to say that, hey, yeah, God made the world, but science dictates the world. Right. That's what deism gave you. Right. God made it and set it in motion, and therefore he placed in the scientific structures that operate the world. Right. But now it does its own thing. We do our own thing, and God kind of leaves us alone. Which God did set up these scientific structures, but doesn't mean that he just also left it to be. Right. He's still, or I at least believe he's still actively involved. Yeah, me too. 1,000%. So, and then... They go into some conversations about the main approaches to Trinitarianism. So, this is... I'm excited for this part. Go ahead. Why? I'm just... I I will explain when I get there. Okay. Go ahead. So, there are three main approaches that they bring up. The first they call the traditional Trinitarian approach as found in Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. Mm -hmm. And the summary of this is that it's one God, or one God is also three persons. Right. That that's the kind of standard language around the Trinity. Right. The second one is an approach that avoids using the language of persons. Yeah. As found in Bart and Rayner. And the summary is the one personal God existent as Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, interestingly, in that one, and I don't know, I've never read Carl Rayner, so I don't know him specifically. Mm. Carl Bart spends a ton of time trying to prove to you that he's not a modalist, mm. but he doesn't want to use the language of person because right. he fe- if for him it feels too disconnected, it feels too separated from the one nature. Right. So he wants to use the word mode. Right. Even though he's not a modalist and knows all the controversies around using that word, Mm -hmm. he wants to use that word. The third one is the social or relational trinity, which is embodied in the work of Jürgen Moltmann. This is my favorite way of thinking about the trinity. Yes. I'm just going to read the entire passage the entire chat of um, paragraph. Social Trinitarians like Jürgen Moltmann affirm that the Father, Son, and Spirit are persons who are capable of relationships pictured in the New Testament. They struggle to maintain the unity of the Trinity, appealing more often to perichoresis, the mutual indwelling or interpenetration of the members of the Trinity, rather than an abstract shared nature. Each person is present and shares the work of the other persons, The unity of God is protected in the shared identity, work, and love of the persons. So, I made a big step in my deconstruction whenever I was reading this passage. Like, reading this page. Page 67. Okay. Um, Why? So, the traditional... I'm getting there. Oh, okay. The traditional Trinitarian approach, like... Cool. It's there. You know, it's the one we all know. It's the one that you all know. I honestly just kind of skimmed that. I didn't even... <laughs> I looked at it. I knew exactly what it was talking about. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then the approaches avoiding persons section here. Um, that's the Carl Bart. section. That's the Carl Bart and Rainer section. 
I kind of skimmed over that too because I kind of knew what they were getting at. Um, and funnily enough, I still find myself like in this position sometimes where I want to avoid using the term persons. Why? Um, not because um, it like I, I want to lean more towards like a modalistic, also not kind of position, but because it relates us to God too much. We talk about each other as persons, mm-hmm. as people. God right. talks about himself as person. Where? In Jesus. Okay. Yes, in Jesus, but not in the Trinity piece, right? This, I still find myself wanting to go to a transcendent God, like lots of times. This, oh, like, you still, like, I, you like, st- I still find myself naturally going that way. Oh, okay. So, yeah, you, you would definitely be in yeah, the Bart, in right. the Bart category. Just because my brain has been wired to want to put God in a transcendent place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just find myself going there. Yeah. And then I was like, then I started reading the social trinity. Also knew this already. But whenever I was able to look at these two positions side by side and compare them, I realized that I do that. That I still want to put God in this transcendent place. Mm, yeah. And I'm like, I need to work on that in my own brain and figure out why I still want to put God there. Well, um, and look, let's also not pretend that Karl Barth is not a magnificent theologian needed to be here. <laughs> and if, and if you, and if you listener don't find yourself in my place where you're like a social Trinitarian panentheist, right. And you need a transcendent God more power to you. Right. Carl Bart is a fantastic theologian Absolutely. who I will spend many a beer drinking with in heaven, asking him questions about God um, and why he thought the things he did and how he wrote so much and all of these things. Honestly, Carl Bart would be somebody that would be fun to have a beer with. Oh, yeah. That'd yeah. be a lot of fun. I, I will drink many a beers in eternity with Carl. Yeah. Um, actually, the final sentence in this section is my favorite sentence in the whole section. Oh, yeah. These debates, meaning these three ways of interpreting the Trinity show that affirming orthodox boundaries does not stamp out ongoing debates about theology. I, I really do want us to say that mm-hmm. on the podcast because we do live in a society where like when you start talking about creeds and Trinity, like and the Trinity, people think that there's only one way to believe that yeah, and still quote unquote, be faithful to an Orthodox Christian right. viewpoint. There's not, there's many a ways of which I don't even think we're done coming up with ways. Yeah. The, well, it's the, the whole idea that the Trinity is so complex and complicated that there's no way there's only three viewpoints to this. No. Right? There, and the, if we can confine ourselves to these three viewpoints, or to even just one, I feel like we're missing a large piece of the puzzle. Well, and that that's their next point about all these metaphors right. and examples that are used for the Trinity. They say the following analogies are common. A woman that is a daughter, a mother, and a sister. H2O as water, ice, and steam. Three people sitting around a table. An egg with yolk, white, egg white, and shell. Fire, light, and heat. 
mind as remembering, understanding, and loving, three notes in a chord, three-leaf clover. Each analogy has strengths and weaknesses, but if you push any one of these analogies to their logical ends, they actually end up supporting one of the heretical positions. It really is next to impossible to communicate this exactly the way we want to. Mm. And this is honestly one of the reasons I try to avoid it. Yeah. Because... It's not helpful. Well... I mean, I think at a basic level, it might be. Let's also not pretend, and this is actually a place where I'm going to disagree with them. Mm. I actually don't think the entire Bible speaks to a Trinitarian thought. I actually think very little of the Bible is given over to a Trinitarian thought. Um, but I think when you look at the picture as a whole, it's easy to see. It's easy to see. Yeah. But each individual biblical author, I don't think every single one of them had Trinitarian thought. I don't think it was even on their horizon. I don't even think it's a question they're asking, especially in the old Testament. I don't think anybody's thinking in terms of the Trinity because everybody's thinking in terms of monotheism. Right. The Shema. Right. One One God. God. Yeah. Everything is about monotheism. And so... Not not that Trinitarian thought isn't monotheism, though. Like... Correct. But nobody would be thinking in these philosophical ways of of, persons and... Yeah, one God, three persons. Yeah, interacting homo usia, the same nature. And nobody's nobody's thinking about these things in that way. Just not a soul is... They they know Yehovah, Yahweh. Correct. Right. That's it. That's all they know. That's it. And they know that That God... That Messiah is coming. That Messiah is coming. Also, which they didn't expect to be divine in that way. Um, And they just... They know that God exists and that God is active in the world. But outside of Yahweh, they know celestial beings. Right. They know an enchanted world. Right. Not a world of deities. Right. That's a very different thing. The Bible, I do not believe the Bible is advocating for any kind of henotheism. That there's many gods. The Bible is very clear in constantly calling out false gods. Right. While acknowledging that celestial beings and spiritual forces outside of God exist, of which there is a cosmic evil that persists. That is a very different statement than saying there is a plurality of deities. Right. Nowhere in the Bible is it saying that. Yeah. The next thing that... I want to spend some time on, and I think this is this is probably the heart of the chapter for me, is they have a section here titled, Where Do We Get in the End? Mm. And I'm just going to read a little bit. 
We begin with mystery, and it's important to return there. As the saying goes, truth is often stranger than fiction. God is more complex and interesting than we ever imagined. And this is just the first chapter in our exploration of his interaction with us and the world. As a short summary of the Trinitarian doctrine, we return to this. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who each equally share one divine nature. Excuse me, one divine nature. The way in which you have those three persons or modes interacting with one another mm-hmm. will dictate how you come up with that sharing of a divine nature. But whether you have a perpetual um, give and take between each of the persons. Yeah or whether or not you have like one big deity glob um, with the three persons existing inside that bubble and that bubble encompassing the whole world. Like however you want to come up with it, there are lots of different ways that you would think about that. But, but no matter what, if you're affirming the Trinity, even if you're like me and in a category that like it's not a historical position. It's a much more modern position. You're still going to be operating according to this summary. And then this is what they say. In this, the summary, we affirm both unity and distinction. God is one in nature, three in persons, or we might say one what and three who's. Each person is fully and truly God. We spoke before of how the Father generates the Son is generated or begotten, and the Spirit proceeds. These important distinctions related to the imminent Trinity, how God um, exists timelessly outside creation, arises from the biblical passages. Now, I want to say, this can get confusing. We talk about transcendence and imminence. In a conversation about the Trinity, you're talking about imminence and economic. Mm-hmm. Imminent Trinity is a transcendent God. Right. An economic Trinity is a social more, is an imminent right. God. It's a little confusing because you use imminent in the wrong way. Right. It's unfortunate. Always have to specify that because it it happens. There's just the, the language can be confusing. Correct. So this is what they say. These important distinctions related to the imminent trinity, how God exists timelessly outside creation, arise from biblical passages like John 3.16 and 15.26. But it's important to note that the Bible predominantly presents the economic trinity, how God engages the world and thus reveals himself through his actions. In the story of the Bible, the Father creates and covenants, the Son saves and redeems, and the Spirit sanctifies and completes. It's not that each person acts independently. Rather, the Father acts through the Son by the Holy Spirit. And this is what the rest of the chapter goes on to talk about, is that the Trinity should not be viewed as a doctrine that is some kind of futile attempt at academic conversations about God. Um, That's a byproduct of what we're actually doing when we have Trinitarian conversations and we study the Trinity. 
What we're actually doing when we do that is we're looking for the way in which God acts in the world. We're looking for the way in which the economy happens, the way in which God redeems, the way in which God restores. How does God accomplish the things he has promised to be redeemer, restorer, um, builder of new creations, creator God? How, how does God accomplish those things within himself? That's the question that we're really asking in Trinitarian conversations because if we're just having a conversation to have a conversation, then what the hell are we doing? Yeah. What we're looking for is we're looking to understand God so that we can understand how he best and we best fit into relationship with him. When you have conversation about the Trinity, if your mind is not on the economics of the Trinity, you have missed the entire Thanks for listening to the Pints and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.